Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I am your host, Robert Scavone, Jr. And I am your co-host, Lindsay Lawton. And today we are going to review a few cases from May, including a couple of federal cases. And we're going to start with a the only criminal case that we have for you this month, which is from the first DCA. But before we do, Lindsay, how are things going with you? Great. Very busy, but can't complain. Looking Doing anything fun? The Did most fun thing. Did you go to a concert recently? A concert. Didn't I see a video of you at a concert or something like that? I don't know. I mean, if you did, my mind has gone blank on that. <laughs> I've, I've also seen you uh, at a couple of MMA bouts. Do you oh, have yeah. someone who is doing that uh, sport? I do. I have two nephews um, who are both amateur MMA fighters. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, Noah Purdue and Micah Purdue. And they are, yeah, they, they were high school and college wrestlers, and now they're uh-huh. training in MMA and they've both had two. No, I think Mike has had one and Noah's had two matches so far. How, how does that work? Do they have to have a certain number of matches as amateurs before they can be pros or is there even a distinction? I don't really know. I'm, I'm kind of learning about it as they go. But yeah, yeah. It's an interesting do they have, In addition to the wrestling training, do they have like martial arts training or is that what they're doing now? That's what they're doing now. Ah, yeah. okay. But they have a coach that they, train with I don't know how often but it seems like all the time <laughs> several times a week um, and he's training them I guess in jiu-jitsu and boxing and wrestling I think are the main three components right. of them. yeah there I think so more. yeah I think so. so yeah they're really good I'm very impressed with them are they trying to recruit recruit you to, to be a fighter yeah <laughs> not yet <laughs> you're you're a good you're a good fighter when it comes to writing and appellate advocacy maybe you could try your hand at some mma this is true this is true we'll see <laughs> yeah my wife is into just about everything you know she power lifts and she roller skates and she played you know she was on a, a semi-pro tackle a woman's football team i'm always fearful that one day she's going to come home and say you know what i want to try mma <laughs> just you know, please don't yeah. I like i like your face the way it is This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an advertisement for legal services. The information provided on this podcast is not intended to be legal advice. You should not rely on what you hear on this podcast as legal advice. If you have a legal issue, please contact a lawyer. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests are solely those of the individual's and do not represent the views or opinions of the firms or organizations with which they are affiliated or the views or opinions of this podcast's advertisers. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Any editing, reproduction, or redistribution of this podcast for commercial use or monetary gain without the expressed written consent of the podcast creators is prohibited. Yeah, so why don't we jump in? All right. You want to start with the first opinion? Yeah, the first uh, opinion that we have is Edinville versus State, uh, issued by the first DCA on May 31st. In this case, a defendant challenged his conviction for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. 
He argued that the statute prohibiting his possession of a firearm is unconstitutional under the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision in New York State Rifle Association versus Bruin, uh, which I know Robert had an episode on a while back. Well, the first DCA disagreed with the challenge to the conviction and affirmed. The first DCA noted that earlier U.S. Supreme Court opinions before Bruin included assurances that felons could be prohibited from possessing firearms and that nothing in Bruin retreated from those assurances. Still, the DCA applied a two-step analysis set forth in Bruin for analyzing the constitutionality of a firearm restriction under the Second Amendment. First, under this two-step analysis, the courts must determine whether the Second Amendment's plain text covers the individual's conduct. Second, if it does, the government must justify the regulation by showing that it, that it is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. The first DCA in this case held that the first step of the Bruin analysis was met. The Second Amendment applies to the defendant's conduct in this case, which was possession of a single-shot shotgun. But the challenge failed at the second step. The first DCA held that prohibiting the possession of firearms by convicted felons adheres to historical tradition. Thank you, Lindsay. Our next case comes from the Super Supremes. They have ushered in a change to preservation requirements in the 11th Circuit. This case arose out of a claim of excessive force brought under Section 1983. The question presented was whether a party must reassert in a post-trial motion a purely legal issue rejected at summary judgment to preserve the issue for appellate review. And the court said no. And Lindsay and I were talking about preservation issues before we uh, started recording today. And I think this, is, this case is helpful, particularly when it comes to preservation. Maybe we can get into that in a moment. So Dupree, the defendant, moved for summary judgment, arguing that Younger, the plaintiff prisoner, failed to exhaust administrative remedies before filing his complaint. So Dupree is the prison guard and Younger is the prisoner. The district court denied the motion. It concluded that despite disputed issues of fact relating to exhaustion, Younger's exhaustion obligation was satisfied when Maryland prison officials completed an investigation into Younger's claim. Essentially, the prison officials found that there was no use of excessive force, and the district court relied on that to say that the exhaustion process had been complete. A jury found Dupree and his co-defendants guilty, and Dupree did not file a post-trial motion under Rule 50B. On appeal, he argued a single issue, whether the district court erred by rejecting his exhaustion defense at summary judgment. And the Fourth Circuit, bound by its own precedent, dismissed the appeal because Dupree did not preserve the issue in a Rule 50B motion. And the Super Supremes vacated the Fourth's judgment and remanded for further proceedings. The court explained that a party must raise a sufficiency of the evidence claim in a post-trial motion to preserve the issue for appeal. That principle, however, does not apply to purely legal issues. And you might ask why. Well, that's because the facts developed at trial supersede, quoting from the court, the record existing at the time of summary judgment. Since the facts may change during trial, a, quote, disappointed party must allow the district court to take a first crack at whether the evidence is sufficient to prove a claim. 
But this is not the case when it comes to purely legal issues, because a reviewing court does not benefit from having a district court re-examine a purely legal issue. Nothing, quoting from the court again, nothing at trial will give the district court any reason to question its prior legal analysis. And before Dupree, the 11th Circuit had held that a post-trial motion is required to preserve a purely legal issue made at summary judgment. And that was in a case called American Builders versus Southern Owen from 2023. So Dupree abrogates this holding and resolves a circuit split on the issue. So what I thought was really important about this opinion, Lindsay, is that you know, you and I discussed offline about all the different procedural traps that are, or landmines that can exist in terms of making sure that issues are preserved for appellate review. And I think this case removes one of those procedural traps. You know, now a party that no longer has to worry about re-raising a purely legal issue in federal court. If you've raised it before and the court decided the issue, that's the issue's preserved. And when it gets to the appellate court, they'll determine whether or not the court got it right on that particular legal issue. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for removing procedural traps. This seems like a good decision. I think I'd like to see removing the procedural trap for any issue raised at the summary judgment stage. If the trial court erred in denying summary judgment, then the trial court erred. Seems to me that the issue would have been brought to the trial court's attention in a timely manner. Um, at the summary judgment stage, and I'm not sure why it can't be corrected just because you didn't file a post-trial motion, you know. Right. So. And I think the court's justification here is just simply that for whatever reason, maybe judicial economy or whatever, they want to, as the court said, we want to let the district court have the first crack at it and, you know, maybe fix the error and never let it guess to us. The court doesn't really talk about the justification for the distinction, but it is what it is. And now in federal court, there's no reason, there's no need to re-raise the issue. So one procedural landmine gone away. Good stuff. <laughs> Let me pause for a moment to thank our sponsor, the law office of Scott N. Richardson, PA. Scott is a former prosecutor who now focuses exclusively on criminal defense. And he is one of the leading criminal defense lawyers in Florida. I have known Scott for several years and litigated against him when I was a prosecutor. All of the judges, prosecutors, and defense lawyers I know regard Scott as a phenomenal lawyer. He is a consummate professional who always zealously advocates for his clients. Scott has been board certified in criminal law for nearly 30 years, and he's been practicing law for over 40. He is a fellow at the American College of Trial Lawyers, an honor bestowed on only 1% of the lawyers in any state. If you need representation, reach out to Scott at 561-471-9600 or find him at scottnrichardsonlaw.com. You got the next one. Okay, next is Williams versus Lomelli from issued by the 5th DCA on May 18th. We included this one as a, a quick cautionary tale. The appellate in this case attempted to appeal an order granting a motion to intervene. The order was not appealable because it was neither the final order in the case nor an appealable non-final order. So the appellate court treated the proceeding as a petition for writ of certiorari, which is good. So far, so good. Mm -hmm. But the petition was filed too late. 
The notice of appeal, which was treated as a petition, was filed more than 30 days after rendition of the order to be reviewed. The appellant slash petitioner evidently thought that the time for seeking review was told by the filing of a motion for rehearing. That is a common trap. Mm-hmm. So, your listeners, please remember a motion for rehearing of a non-final order, which should really be called a motion for reconsideration, does not toll the time for seeking review in the appellate court. That is because yeah. the rules do not authorize motion for rehearing of a non-final order. The rules authorize rehearing of a final order only. But this is interesting because I just had this issue come up in one of my cases. And we had to get the cert petition filed before the 30 days because the petition related to a non-final order. And a lot of practitioners think that, well, if I file a motion for reconsideration, the time's told and no. And it can be a, and obviously that's jurisdictional. So there's no way around it. If you miss it, you miss it. And you're probably going to get sued for malpractice. All right. You also have the next opinion. I do. And it actually also relates to another sort of procedural trap. Yep. <laughs> um, this case is our Alf- the Alfie A. Shahid and Patricia Allen Shahid Family Trust versus Miller, issued by the 5th DCA on May 12th. And this case provides a warning about preservation. The 5th DCA affirmed the dismissal of a complaint with prejudice because the, the appellant did not specifically seek leave to amend the complaint after the trial court made its decision to dismiss with prejudice. According to Chief Judge Lambert's concurring opinion, there were two reasons that the trial court dismissed the complaint. One of those reasons was valid and the other was not. The valid reason was that the complaint didn't contain a short and plain statement of the ultimate facts showing that the pleader is entitled to relief. But Chief Judge Lambert said here, one can readily glean from the second amended complaint that appellant can plead a viable cause or causes of action. Unfortunately for the appellant, that was not enough to entitle the appellant to reversal of the dismissal with prejudice. Under the rules of preservation, the appellant had to move for rehearing of the trial court's order and argue that he was entitled to another opportunity to amend. I call it a trap just because it's one of these situations where you can see the person was entitled to relief, but just didn't presumably didn't know that it was necessary to bring to the trial court's attention that the dismissal should have been with prejudice. I'm sorry, without prejudice instead of with prejudice. All right. The last opinion that we have is Roselle versus VMSB. And this is another federal case that comes to us from the 11th circuit. And in a published opinion, the court held that rule 41A2 cannot be used to create appellate jurisdiction over a partial grant of summary judgment. The court said that the text of the rule prohibits it. The plaintiff may dismiss an action without a court order by filing a stipulation of dismissal signed by all the parties who have appeared. This case involved a three count complaint. The parties filed cross motions for summary judgment and the magistrate court recommended granting summary judgment as to counts one and two only. The district court adopted the R&R and granted summary judgment in favor of the defendants as to counts one and two. The court approved the settlement to count, as to count three and directed the parties to file, quote, a joint stipulation of dismissal of count three with prejudice. 
the parties complied, and the plaintiff appealed the grant of summary judgment in favor of the defendants. This was an easy case for the 11th Circuit. The word action means the entire case, not an individual count. Quote, here because the parties attempted to dismiss one count rather than the entire action, no part of Rule 41A authorized the dismissal. And because the dismissal was ineffective, count three is still pending before the district court. That means there was no final decision to review. The court dismissed the appeal for lack of jurisdiction. And a quick note, the court reached the same conclusion as to Rule 41A-1 in several cases for the same reason. Action means action. Okay, one interesting thing to note here, Robert, is that the federal rule being discussed in this opinion is different from the Florida rule. So if you are a litigant that wants, or a plaintiff who has settled a claim and wants to have it dismissed in Florida court, uh, you should look at rule 1.420 that explains how you do that. And it actually does, unlike the Florida, unlike the federal rule, it does allow for a stipulated dismissal of a claim or a part of an action, not just the entire action as uh, apparently the federal rule requires. Great point. Great point. And, you know, some people maybe that are listening, maybe thinking, okay, well, this kind of creates an obstacle for parties in federal court. And this is what the 11th circuit had to say about that. Say, quote, does this rule create procedural oddities? Not if the parties plan around it. Litigants who wish to dismiss, settle, or otherwise resolve less than the entire action can assure that they receive a final judgment on the remainder of the claims, which means that we will have appellate jurisdiction by seeking partial final judgment under Rule 54B from the district court or by amending their complaints. Can you break that down? Yeah, um, to me, that just says that a stipulated dismissal is not the only way to dismiss. In fact, as, as we've discussed, a stipulated dismissal is not a way to dismiss a single claim in a multi-claim case in federal court. But that doesn't mean that you can't get just a single claim removed from the case before the other claims are resolved. It just means you need to get a court order dismissing it based on your right. settlement. Right. So then that claim is out. Now, in this case, for example, you get a court order as to count three, dismissing the claim. Now you still have these two active counts, counts one and two, and the court renders a judgment on those counts. And now the appellate court has something to review. Yeah. Now there's a final order in the case. Um, right. All right, folks. Well, that's a wrap. Uh, I think these were some really important opinions that we discussed today, a little bit in the weeds, but nonetheless important for litigators to know about. So Lindsay and I are going to be reconvening on June the 20th with Amanda Haverstick to talk about legal writing. So I will see you in a few short weeks, Lindsay. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. I hope we get to reconvene in person at the Florida Bar Convention, which is coming up, uh, I think it's the 21st through the 24th of this month. Yep, I'll be there. 
it'll be exciting to um, be exciting to see you in person finally, meet you in person. Of course, I want to thank my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions for editing and producing this podcast. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash pendulum productions. I want to thank you. We want to thank you for listening and hope that you subscribe to the podcast and rejoin us for every episode. And remember folks, case law is one word. Thank you.